friends, and welcome to Pod Return to the Waking Sands. We are a Final Fantasy XIV companion lore podcast where we explore the story of Heidelin and beyond. I'm Jen, and I'm joined by my co-host, co-host, co-host and researcher. I'm Levi. Hello, Levi. Today, we are resuming our Gridania main story quest. Before we get going, though, let's feature some Elizin lore. They are one of our last two peoples of Eorzea we've not talked about yet. Elizins are all over the Gridania and Black Shroud area. Yeah. This is because, as we know from earlier, the underground city of Gelmora was founded by both the Heer and Elizin that traveled there to occupy open space near the Twelve's Wood, but the Elementals at the time would not allow them to cohabitate. The Elementals wouldn't let them cohabitate with them. The Hears and the Elizans certainly cohabitated. Right, yes. And this was after a long period of conflict. Eventually, they said, okay, we're done fighting. Let's figure something out. Good for them. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Of course, the the Hears, as we discussed, are mainly fantasy humans. They're expansive and violent, blah, blah, blah. Elizin are kind of, but not really, typical fantasy elves. They are tall with pointed ears, like many elves are. Younger Elizin, though, are very short, and they have a huge growth spurt as they approach their adulthood. Like your typical elf, they are long-lived, but in this world, we're talking a few extra decades of their lifespan, not centuries or millennia. So if violence or disease or whatever doesn't get them first, they will break 100, but not much more so. I mean, that seems not that impressive. Not that a lifespan serves to impress me. Take that, Ellison's. But <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, if yours lifespan is similar to ours, what, 80 years old? If their average lifespan is 100, like, uh, okay. It, it, I feel like it would be more only because they don't like physically mature until they're like early 20s. Humans in the real world also go through a physical maturation into the 20s as well. It's just that we have a more gradual increase in height. We don't go from three feet tall to six feet tall or seven feet tall. I feel like though that in, in like fifth grade and sixth grade, that's kind of the height disparity between boys and girls, uh, or at least biologically male. Every all, all of them were so short. And <laughs> all of those, those of us who are biologically, biologically female were like a head taller than them. It made for very funny middle school dances. It's got to suck, though, for the, um, the teen Elizin. They have to, to like wear ponchos or something because who's going to give them a set of clothes for every two weeks as they're gaining like three feet in height? Yeah, I would like to see an Elizin in transition. We only see them. Um, we see them as as children. We see them as adolescents. And then boom, adult. So, you know, I would I would think that the amount of time that we've spent with that we would see them getting a little bit taller and then then their their mom would make them <laughs> new <laughs> outfits. Um, but we don't. They stay the same size. Also in the elfish vein, the Elizin claim to be the first people to live in Eorzea. This may be true. They live like everyone else now, though. They live in cities. They live in the same type of homes. There's no mystical Elizin elf land that like they from- retreat to after they've reached five millennia in, in age or something. They, they live lives just like everyone else does. There's no kind of 
mysticism that separates them. Oh, like in Lord of the Rings. Yes. That is the framework for a lot of elf characterizations in other fiction as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the the um, like the decorative arts aesthetic has carried over from the uh, the Tolkien aesthetic, I guess, or at least popular culture's interpretation of the Tolkien aesthetic. You know, like the all the, the swirling asymmetry and the, um, the the Art Nouveau lines and the that all carries into Final Fantasy when we talk about Elizan architecture and aesthetics. Mainly Gridanian. I think that Ishgard Minor Minor spoilers is a real classical fantasy city like a medieval type yes, city yes so less there but more more like in the um the decorations on their clothes and jewelry sure um it still it still carries over through all of that as well yep we've got two types of elizans that are featured in this world the one that we see most often are the wildwood elizan these are your typical running around town being elizan type <laughs> Ellisons versus what, like the 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 Ozark Ellisons, backwoods Ellisons, not running kind around of. town, being spooky, being yes, weird. That's correct. <laughs> These are essentially the, the ones that you you meet. The vast vast majority, the ones you interact with, there isn't much notable about them besides the physical features which set them apart from the other peoples, given their height and their very wide ear span, and <laughs> that's about it. But these are the ones that founded Gelmora, is my understanding, because they used to live on the plains. They were chased from their plains home by the invading Hure, which drove them underground. So the Wildwoods have these kind of plains-type archery traditions and instrumentality. Mm -hmm. The other type are the Dusk White Elizin. These tend to have darker hues to their skin, they tend towards grayish hues, but of course, there's a whole palette to choose from when you're creating a dusk white character. Just darker neutrals? Sure. Yeah. And they reputedly have keener hearing than the wild woods do. The dusk whites emerged as a separate kind of offshoot of the Elizan people when the Gelmorans left Gelmora to go to the surface after they had forged their pact with the elementals. And it's my understanding that the Wildwoods eschewed that relationship and they stayed underground. You mean the Dusk Whites? Excuse me. The, the Dusk Whites, yes. Okay. So for for how long? Like a couple centuries? Still today. Oh, okay. They can go where they want to, obviously, now. Oh, and they, and they do. Yeah, we see them. Yes. We do see them about town, Levi. Thank you, Jen. But we associate the, the Dusk White ancestry with cave dwellers. Yes, and that's it's interesting because I, you know, in our in our natural world, cave dwelling beings tend to be very pale, or they could have even translucent skin. But you know, like axolotls and other things, like there's no there's no need for melanin in their skin. Um, so that's just like an interesting take. Like, okay, they live in dark caves underground, so therefore their skin tone is going to be darker neutrals. The biology of this world does not obey the laws that we recognize in the real world. Right, yes. So we can't really speculate down scientific lines when you have the ethereal forces mucking things up on top of normal other like biological growth. Fair. Yeah, we can try to make sense of things through the lens of being an earthling, but that only goes so far and we have to realize that before we get too into these arguments. Yep. <laughs> However, there is a cultural trajectory for the dusk whites of rebelliousness and nonconformism. love it 
presumably because they said, no, we're not going to go with you back to the surface. We like it here. We're going to do our own thing down here. Yeah. But that translates, though, into a bad rap for Dusk Whites in Gordania and surrounding region. And that's Elizans. Everyone we talked to today is going to be an Elizan, so there you go. On now to the main story quest. Last time, uh, we arrived in Gridania, and we did the normal, you have arrived in a city thing. We were on a cart, we got accosted with some bullshit, um, we made a friend, and we walked into the city, and we had to do some things to familiarize ourselves with the city. So visiting the market, visiting the Aetherite, um, checking in with our guildmaster. That was, that's basically it. Our handler this time is Mother Miyun. She's a matronly Elizan, and she likes to call herself Mother. Mm-hmm. Mother likes that. <laughs> oh, Mother God. likes some of that good stuff. Mommy like. She says that. She not, does. She, she doesn't does. say mommy. She says mother mm-hmm. likes that. Yes. Like almost is word really for word. Very weird. funny. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So Mother Mune has sent us to go help out at the Bannock. Yeah, we are going to see Galfred. I think he's a here. He is not Ellison. Of course, he has like a mask on and a helmet and... They're unsettling just because you can't see eyes. There's something more unsettling about those than the the old uh, masks. I don't know why. Just these black holes in your face. So we're here with Galfred. This is, as mentioned, the the bannock. A, a bannock is a type of flatbread, and the name of the area could come either from this massive, like massive flattened stump, which is used for training by the twin adders, which are kind of the army. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about the grand companies in a little bit. But anyways, the, the bannock could refer to this training stump, or it could refer to the, the rations that are eaten by the, the twin adders. I like how there are there are a, a number of areas around uh, the Twelves Wood that utilize these massive stumps, like, you know, beyond sequoia size. And I don't think you really see a ton of trees in the Twelves Wood that are this enormous, where they're, you know, 75 feet across. Or larger, but I love how they incorporate them. The Etherite Plaza at Bent Branch Meadows utilizes them. There are there's a a one of the um, structures we visit out in the Twelves Wood has this like amazing split level. Like there's a house, but it's also integrated into the enormous stump, and the stump is basically like their backyard and their patio. And I'm like, this is great. I would love this in real life. It seems like a pain to maintain. Oh my god! Because it's in the earth itself, so moisture is going to be a huge issue. Guarantee you got termites or whatever coming up. Oh my god. You sound like a homeowner. One, rude. <laughs> Two, yeah. That's <laughs> how you sound. Stump dreams dashed. Hey, you know what? It's just like having a lawn, a lot of maintenance. So, um, we're here with Galfred still. <laughs> There's a weird beat here as he gives us our mission where we go from being nagged by the Wood Whalers five in game minutes ago back at the inn in Gridania, where they're like, look at you, fresh off the cart, some kind of scrub. You better watch yourself. Yeah, we don't like outsiders, blah, blah. And now Galfred starts talking about our tireless efforts in proving ourselves a friend to Gridania. We haven't done anything of note so far. 
it feels like some quest steps got cut here and the dialogue wasn't updated. Oh my god, I totally missed that. Because literally all we've done is like check in. Yes. <laughs> so uh, unless <Oops. laughs> me doing side quests in Cordania, like in the city itself, but unless that trips some flag to make him think I'm a, a bro all of a sudden, then I've done nothing of note that should make me a friend to the wood. But anyways, maybe he got some bad intel. So he has a secret mission for us. The rise in Ixali aggressiveness has um, corresponded with the appearance of a stranger in the wood. Mm. This unknown person has proven adept at evading the adders. Galfred helps that a lone adventurer being ourselves will be more adept at tracking them down and not tipping our hand prematurely. It's a good strategy. And convenient for us. Perfect. We want to do some stuff. We're here to adventure. Our quarry is supposedly up at the Life Mend stump. The walk up here really showcases the aesthetic appeal of the Twelves Wood. We have a rocky path that winds up against a cliffside that goes behind a waterfall that is cut by a rainbow. <laughs> this is about as scenic as it gets. I think this is, despite having 1600 plus hours in this game, I think this was the first time I had ever been in this spot. There's no reason to otherwise, so Yeah, probably. no, I just, you know, I thought I'd seen all the things. I hadn't, had never seen the Life Mend stump. About the stump, this is a more natural-sized stump. It's not enormous. Yes, this is like redwood-sized. Right. It's topped with a decorative circle of stones, nuts, and leaves. And I tried very hard to figure out what this was, and I came up dry, except I found some random wiki that says that the Gredanians will leave items here for the Mughals to mend. Mm. I was going to say, I feel like it's Moogle-related somehow. I don't know where this came from, this information, so citation needed, but it's all I found on the stump. Interesting. Seems inconvenient. It was. Okay. Anyway, this stump is marred by a curved, elegant blade embedded into the top of the stump. Yeah, so this is where we become king. No. Right? The lady in the stump. (laughs) Hot. That's the the discount King Arthur mythology. (laughs) (laughs) As we inspect the sword... A trio of noteworthy characters comes to interrupt us. Oh dear, is that a sword in the stump? Bad idea. Really bad idea. It takes a lot less than that to incite the green wrath, you know? Why, the first time we came to the Twelves Wood, is we this almost our ended dark up as a stranger? Dinner, just for crashing our airship in the wrong place. No, no, no. It was all popular. This is a Moogle Cuplo cop. The same one that met us on the way into Grudania in the first place. And then a monocle-wearing Lalafell called a short-tempered thaumaturge or papalimo. And then a here lady that's wearing a perforated leather mask like the brass blades do. This is an animated pugilist <laughs> or Ida is her name. Yeah, we don't get their real names until um, a couple right levels. Right after the cutscene. Really? No, they, they don't introduce themselves until... Galfred um, tells us their names when we get back to the, um, to the stump. To really? To the bannock. Yes. Oh, okay. Before we go on, though, I've got a comment on this scene. This is the whole voiced cutscene, very elaborate for this, this tier of mm, game. Yeah. But it's super bizarre because it feels like we're an NPC in the Final Fantasy game that features Papalimo, Ida, and Cupolo Cop as the main characters. Yeah. Because they roll up here, they're talking to each other, 
we stare at them like an idiot as they're going about their business, doing, doing their story, talking about their problems. We get into a fight. The damage we deal is next to nothing to these enemies coming up. Whereas both Ida and Papalimo are destroying these enemies. Like, we can do nothing and right. it will not change the outcome of the fight. Yeah, I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And then Papalimo will get, like, a fire off and then suddenly, like, pfft, that health is decimated. Yep. Like, what the fuck? It's like we're the Wood Whalers in the Conjurer instance. I know. <laughs> that don't do anything but take up space and lose health. And, and they're the main character doing the stuff. And that's okay because, one, we are a brand new fucking adventurer. We don't know, even though we are special, we don't really know a lot. So it just gives us an opportunity to see, I guess, how powerful they are. What's weird, though, is that in the Limsa and the Ulda equivalents, we do We're a doing normal amount stuff. of damage. Right. We, we get help from our friend in those cutscenes, but we are not useless. This one is just like, well, nope, everything's too tough for you, but these guys got it covered. And then we pass out after that. And they are busy talking to each other and solving their mystery while we wake up and then they leave and they barely give us a glance. It's like we're the, the dumbass NPC in their story. If the Gridania story was my first introduction to the game versus it being the last MSQ, only in that latter scenario is there something to compare it to. So now it seems odd. Honestly, it was kind of refreshing. <laughs> And also having, you know, a pair. So we have the these scholars that stumble upon this, or, you know, we kind of stumble upon their search for this um, mysterious individual. And we get wrapped up in it. But other than that, I, I don't know. Like, for some reason, I, I with Ida and Papalimo, they're very much like their own little, they have their own little uh, dynamic going on. And Ida, I think, is very distractible. And Papalimo is is very. I mean, literally, they're like the odd couple. So it didn't it didn't strike me as 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 uh, as odd as it did you. I also I don't think that the game lets us be a hero for a good while. Here's your corner where you can be cool in, but it's not like you're the star for a good number of levels. So I, I don't think that this segment is noteworthy in that it backseats you because you don't get to be a, a special person until a good while from now. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you attribute the like the lack of um, interaction between the Warrior of Light and Ida and Papalimo to simply like a design decision? Yes. Okay. Because if if I were to do like a role playing game, for instance, I would never stick the player characters in a scene where two NPCs are talking to each other and the players are just watching unless they were specifically trying to like eavesdrop on someone or otherwise. But if they are part of the scene, then they are going to be part of the scene because three to five people don't want to spend their their afternoon listening to me talk to myself. They want to be engaged with what's going on. So if there was going to be a scene in a, a role-playing game, like a, a pen and paper role-playing game, I would never do this kind of thing because this is just making the players listen to my fan fiction pretty much. Whereas the whole part is to, to take part in it and to influence things as your player character. As a, a video game, you can't have the same adaptivity and same input as you can with a um, an actual like pen and paper RPG because this is all programmed. But at least in these things, they, they give your character a part in the scene. Whereas here we have zero part 
the exact same thing can fall without our being here whatsoever. We, we make zero difference to this and we're not acknowledged. It's just the Papalimo, Ida, and Kuplo show. How rude. They are very rude, I will agree. And again, like, I, I'm not mad at the scene. I don't think it's necessarily bad or offensive. I just think it's very odd that we get this treatment in this one scene. Especially in contrast to the other two, where the characters present will interact with us and engage with us and either tell us what's going on or deliberately obfuscate from us what's going on, depending on their preferences. But we are a counterpart to their interaction. This is true. We seem more like a a key participant. And here we're kind of doing the same thing. We're kind of checking up on the same issue, but... Papalimo and Ida know more information about what's going on, whereas we're just doing what Galfred has asked us, and we don't really, we haven't put anything together yet. This is, this is just like a one-off mission, so we don't have anything really to add other than this is what's happened to me, this is what I've seen, I hope it uh, informs your investigation. In the other locations, this point in the story serves to introduce us to the meta plot. So we don't know shit when we go into any of these things, but we get drawn into it. We we get talked next to in the Grudania one about what's going on, and we can overhear them talking and, and understand what's going on, but we are not invited to take part in the story. We are witnessing a story unfold. Right. Anyway, these guys show up. They are worried that this um, stump sabotage is going to spur the greed wrath. Which, as we talked about last time, the Green Wrath is the Wrath of the Elementals. I'm not clear at this point in time on if that's actually a threat because they seem a lot less potent these days than they did before the Calamity. Ida goes off about how when they first got there, there there's this whole to-do about them offending the Elementals. The scene does another strange thing here. It, It has one character talking with voice lines in the background while another character is actually the focus of the camera and focus of the subtitles. So there'll be one person who is actually talking as the the person of interest right then, but there'll be voice going on in the background from the other person just rambling on about something. I thought this was really cute. And I, I thought it spoke to the dynamic between these two people really well. How one is prone to distraction and rambling and Blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, one is actually saying things of maybe a little bit more substance um, that we should be paying attention to. I thought that was adorable. I I think that the point of it was to show you their dynamic and how attuned they are with one another. I think it's successful in that sense. I don't know from from a presentation or from a direction standpoint if it's especially successful. I thought my game had bugged out when that first happened. It's never happened before in the game. Or never again in this way. But it it felt like there's something wrong with the the audio triggers because I had one person who was speaking at almost like a normal volume. She gets faded out a little bit. Ida just rambled in the background while Papalima was talking to me. And it was hard to make out what was being said because they're both talking over one another. So this is interesting from a a, a characterization standpoint. I I don't think it's the most successful um, as far as the actual implementation goes. Yes, it was it was kind of hard to like if you didn't have the text there to read, it would have been very difficult to understand. So yeah, they they could have, I guess, dialed that in a little bit differently, but I do appreciate that they did it all the same. I think that when this happens in other media, they tend to kind of really 
drone out the person in the background to make it like near incomprehensible. Right. Just kind of like a, a vague like drone in the background. But also I think the camera work would have would have added something here too. If um, it, typically when you're when you're watching somebody speak, it's it's like extreme close up, um, like their face is the screen. So if they had like, you know, zoomed out and it, you had seen the two of you in the, in the foreground, but in the background, you could see Ida kind of like maybe wandering around and mumbling to herself. Um, with maybe like a little speech bubble popping up in there that would have been di- that would have been different. But I, I think that would have been also just as jarring because that that sort of camera work doesn't happen when there's a dialogue between two characters or between you and another character. Sure. But anyway, though, <laughs> um, they are momentarily concerned that we are the ones who stabbed the stump. But then the, the Mughal Kuplo cop vouches for us, telling them that we're legit because we go way back to... 30 minutes ago when we met on the cart. Right. So we're the real deal. We didn't do this. Thanks, Kublo, for for the the vouch. Once they're assured that we are not the culprit, then Ida and Papalima go on to discuss their findings with one another while we listen on from the background. So they're going on about how the force is extra sensitive since the calamity, which goes back to our corruption theorizing from last episode. But on cue... An angered treant comes into view and assaults us. We can infer this guy is riled up by the overall level of disruption, or maybe the elementals are pissed the stump got stabbed, so then the, the treant is now angry too. It's not explained, but something is amiss, and this thing is riled up because of the overall imbalance in the local area. It charges us, and we get into our fight. Yeah, we, we kind of touched on this before, where it's it's a it's an odd fight compared to the others we had before. We, we're the main character. We're the main, you know, sparring partner with whoever it is or whatever it is. And our scholar friend is doing the healing, or right, that's, that's basically it, doing the healing, um, if they're there at all. This adds to the old, you know, third wheel vibe. Where the damage we're doing is very minimal, and it's it's clear that Papalimo and Ida are doing the bulk of the damage, and we instead of kind of standing off and letting us do the adventurer bit, there's like there's like a couple of big fat treants, and then of course you know ads keep on spawning, and this was I was I was worried there for a bit um, doing this fight. I'm like I, I don't think I'm able to handle that, which is a really weird feeling because normally I can just melt anything. Because it, it's not really about like beating the thing; it's just it's part of the story. So it's it's typically an easy fight, um, but this was less easy, and it made me nervous for a hot second. They beat the trant. Afterwards, we find our little blue crystal on the ground. We pick it up. We faint and have the vision where we meet Heidelin, just like in the other quest lines. Later on, we awaken and find Papalimo and Ida inspecting a dead Ixel chieftain who they theorize is the one that actually sabotaged this stump. Yes, which is odd that an Ixel would, one, venture this far into the Twelves Wood, and two, uh, start some shit, some unfathomable shit. Unfathomable to us at this moment anyway. Sure. It's odd that they're so close to Gridania. That's the main detail, I think. They head off to go do their business, and they casually mention on the way out that maybe we should take that blade back to Galfred. He's the one who is trying to, um, well, one, you know, he wanted us to figure out who this this mysterious stranger was. This event is most likely definitely connected to mysterious stranger thing. And uh, it makes sense that we would bring back the evidence for him to um, examine. Understood. Over and out. 
We bring the blade back to Galfred. He confirms what was discussed by Ida and Papalimo, saying, yes, this is an Ixal ritual blade. That's weird. Oh, here's some errands for you. And we're about to get into some Gordania-ass errands here. This is just like the Uldah levels 5 through 10 quest line, where there's an errand. We talk to one person. They have us do one thing. We turn the quest in. They pawn us off to the next person. It's a series of empty names, essentially in sequence, where we do some grindy MMO-style quests. Yep. Galfred kicks us over to Monrangan at Gilbert's Spire, but we have to finish up an errand first. We have to kill some Chigos for their egg sacs and drop them off at the Spire. Chigos are giant mosquitoes. We kill a few and then head a short distance away to the Spire. Gilbert's Spire is just a big wooden watchtower. We give Monranguin, Monrangin, whatever. We give him the eggs, and he explains that they inspect these eggs for signs of the creeping death. This is a disease that is very dangerous to the Hurian population. More errands. Next up, we have to go recover some abandoned surveying equipment that was dropped by a new recruit from the Adders. They were sent out to do some surveying. They got spooked by some enemies. They dropped the equipment, and then they ran away. So we're here now to go and recover it and drop it off to its intended recipient, who is... A hearer. Hearer Pauline. We find the equipment scattered in this river tunnel. It's infested with Yarzons. Yarzons are like giant daddy long legs. With viper heads. Yep. Pretty cool. They usually appear in aquatic environments like rivers and lakes. I infer the legs are there to keep their bodies dry. Yeah, that's interesting. They're, they're, yeah, it's either um, like bogs, swamps, or little creeks. Yep. Yeah. They just wait around there and I'm assuming chomp down on fish or fish something. Or each other. Mm-hmm. Amphibians or adventurers, as the case may be. Yep. We fight them off and we recover the equipment and we drop it off with Hearer Pauline. She tells us that this gear is there to survey the Twelves Wood and to take in changes that were wrought by the Calamity. So they can update their records from the changes that happened during that big event. Next errand. Now we're going to go and wage war against some annals for Pauline. Just go and cull a, a couple of these guys, which we do. And Let's not forget, we are killing their eggs too. Well, I was getting to that. Okay. So you have to kill a, a few of these, I don't know, six or eight, something like that. But then also grab one of their eggs so that we can make sure that the second generation, or not the second, but the next generation is less numerous and belligerent. The annals are little raptor guys, like dinosaur Scale raptor kin. guys. Yeah. Yes. They live in the mountains, but they have overpopulated the area. So they're descending now down to the Twelves Wood to hunt. Which is the, the go-to justification for killing anything and to, to practice your uh, your fighting skills. Just is, you know, to rebalance. So that's what we do. We grab an egg and we take it back. My my character that's doing this is a Lullafell, and this egg was the same size as her entire body. I don't know where she put it. I don't know how she carried it, but she did because she's a badass. <coughs> so we take the egg back to Pauline. She's like, oh, fuck, that's great. You know who's going to love this? Galfred. He's going to feed it to his dudes and they're going to be stoked. And that's exactly what happens. So they make annual omelet, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's 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 like the size of three ostrich eggs. Yeah. Finally, some plot. So now that we're back at Galfred, we get tapped for some work. There is a crisis at Spirit Hold. Spirit Hold is an underground ruin that was built by the Gilmorans. Not underground. It is partially underground. 
Well, it's multi-level. So you go in on the surface and you go up some stairs, but then you're also then suddenly at the bottom of this massive tree and it feels subterranean. So there's, I mean, obviously there's a lot of uh, topographical. (laughs) Can we call it semi-surface? Sure. Is that a compromise? Okay. Right. It's a split-level dungeon. Is a semi-surface ruin (laughs) that was built by the Gilmorans. It was later used by the Grudanians as a prison, and it's been abandoned since the Calamity. The whole area is a cut stone, like a cobble path going upstairs into this cliffside that goes through a cut stone gate. The stairs continue until they reach this underground or semi-underground section, depending on who you ask, where they have this chamber that it has several cells lining it, which is presumably the prison. The whole area is infested with imps, mm-hmm. like the little winged void scent. Yep, trickster imps. It sounds like a hearer has departed to Spirit Hold in order to offer it back to the forest by means of the right of returning. Yes. The right of returning, as we can infer from what we hear in a little bit, is a ritual by which we say thank you, elementals, for giving us this crumb of land for our nefarious civilized purposes. We're done with it. We now give it back to you. We were just borrowing it in the first place. Right. So it'll it'll now, you know, be, go back to the Twelves Wood and it'll become overgrown and like a like an artificial reef of, of, of a sort. Yep. However, some shadowy figure has menaced the hearer's party and chaos has been wrought amongst them. Some fled, some are trapped in the ruin. However, just at this time, the local forces have been drawn away by an Ixel attack. Coincidence? Suspicious. Probably not. So it's not a shadowy figure. They they refer to it as literally a shadow, which can who knows what the fuck that means. But it seems a lot a lot creepier. I think like they were they were terrorized by a shadow. Yeah. So whatever it is, it has overcome a group of wood whalers and conjurers. Uh, about half a dozen of them are still trapped in the spirit hold. We head up here, killing imps and saving the the trapped heroes party along the way. They go running once we find them cowering amongst the ruins. And eventually we find the hearer himself inside the underground portion of Spirit Hold. Uh, Our rescue, though, is interrupted by a lurking black-robed mage. This is the shadow figure. Mm -hmm. This guy is our black-masked Asian, who summons once again a clay golem to fight us. This is probably the least fanfare this fight's had. We roll into the room, he intones his spell immediately, and out comes his clay golem. And we fight it inside this underground ruin. We, of course, beat it, and we reveal to the Asian that we are no normal adventurer. Because never before has this creature been so sorely tested yeah. as it has now. Yeah, no one, no one beats this clay golem of mine, except for this person. They must be special. Like, fuck, yeah, we're special. Well, don't hold on to that feeling too much because Papalimo and Ida rush up Here just now. Here we go. They, they curse. Knock us down a peg. They curse the escape of the Asian, but are like, oh, you're here. How's it going? Hmm. Unfortunately, we are overcome by a vision and flash back to the past. So it's, it's like pre-calamity and then post-calamity. This is flashing back to Ida and Papalimo's past like we do in, in this segment. We see our scholars' history. The first scene has Ida and Papalimo spying on Ixal in the Twelves Wood. They are wondering if they're going to summon a primal. 
this is back in the the old um, 1.0 pre-calamity days. Time flashes forward again, and they're surveying flora that is suffering beneath the ethereal effects of the red moon Dalamud, which you can see looming in the sky in this flashback. Yes, they're encountering a lot of withering. Yes. Right, we flash forward again. They're um, uh, still in the Twelves Wood. This is like their, this is their territory. And... Examining some of the ethereal disturbances uh, that have been present since the calamity. This is this is post calamity. Ida's complaining about her etherometer because it's it's clunky, it's ugly. And Papalimo is like, this is cutting edge Charlian technology to show some respect. Like this interaction and some of the previous interactions we've seen between them, it's clear that Ida has um either she's like super laid back and casual, it like she has like a different background than than Papalimo. Like like we've seen, she's she's distractible. I think just kind of the the overall like caliber of her conversation, I, or you can just I mean yeah. So something seems like the, the the two personalities, at least well, Ida's personality compared to the other scholars, quote unquote, that we've seen so far, is is very different. I I just I don't know. I I've always really liked Ida. I think she's really cute. She she seems kind of ditzy, you know, but. They're, I mean, these these two are very, they're excellent together, clearly. Well, what is she? She's an animated pugilist. Animated pugilist. That's, that's literally, yes, she's very animated. She's very, she's very bubbly, but kind of, she comes across as kind of ditzy. Papalimo is, is very much the opposite. He's, he's very serious, trying to keep her on task. Then, I, like, this scene, I think, is immediately prior to them meeting us at the uh, Life Men stump. Yes. Yeah. That's on brand for these flashbacks. We get one scene of the scholar with their atherometer, and they sense the disturbance right where we are. And they rush over, and that's when we meet them. Yep. We come out of our vision. Ida is wondering why we spaced out for a moment, but Papalima doesn't give a shit. He's talking to the hearer right now and um, inspecting the real problem here. Was it... Um- because um, this time we didn't faint, right? We just kind of like glazed over? Yes. Okay, yeah. The fainting is just when we pick up the crystal. Right. Papalimo is talking about the failed rite of returning might anger the elementals. Yeah, we need to get this, this ritual back on track right away. Um, because it's like an unfulfilled promise. Right. They will escort the hero back to safety. Don't worry, we got this covered. I guess we're going to go back and see Mother Miyun because we got nothing else going on. Yep. <laughs> hey, hey, Mother, let me tell you about my day. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> mother is impressed. Mommy like. <laughs> and she gives us an in-room on the house. Yeah, all the uh, all the adventurer stuff is open to us now. We've got leave quests. We've got the in-room. We get the guild hests. Oh, that's it. Yeah, That's it. Our next job will be at the Bent Branch Meadows, but we'll take a break here, you and me, Jen, until next time. For phase three. It's been hinted at, but the, the meta plot here seems to be that the Asians are trying to drive a wedge between the Elementals and the Gordanians. This is with them getting the Ixals to... Stab a stump. Stab a stump. So they have the Ixal involved here to get the Elementals stirred up. They are also trying to interfere with the relationship directly, such as trying to break this right of returning to... Further act... disrupt that, in- that relationship. Yes. 
that requires a lot of attention. Yes. We don't know the exact purpose of these things. All we know is that we, in every single MSQ, the Ascians are trying to empower the Beastmen against the city. They're just starting drama. Yeah. Yes. And that's presumably to sow chaos amongst them so they cannot resist whatever is coming next. Correct. Yeah. Like we're already spread so thin. I'm just make it even worse. It's interesting because like we talked about in the first Gridania episode, the Empire used similar tactics of trying to piss off the Elementals against the Gridanians. Hmm. This is so little content, but we're at level 10. We've done the first leg of our MSQ here. I even feel like there, there's more going on in Uldah, even though levels 5 through 10 was the same run around a bunch and do side quests. It feels like we covered more ground there, but maybe I'm just overinflating it in my memory. Probably, just because for both of us, that was the first, our our first city. I'm talking about our recent playthrough. Maybe it's because we, we went from Black Brush to Horizon and back again in that phase. So maybe it's just that we covered more ground. Yeah. Because we stay in the east part of Central Shroud this entire time. Yes. Uh, so, there, yeah, there's that. Also, there's the, the, the looming specter of you just hating the Grudanian aesthetic in general. It's just uh, a fantasy light, you know, copy paste. Like, fuck it. I didn't come here to hate on Grudania. I was hoping to have my mind changed from my early impressions, but it's not done a great job yet. Well, I guess we'll see how phase three treats us all. I really wish we actually got more time, more face time with Ida and Papalimo, because I like these characters. Same. They're just too busy for us right now. Yeah, they have a very special relationship, clearly. Yeah. You know, despite them being like kind of polar opposites. Next time, we'll be talking about the Lancer class. I'm looking forward to this one. My recollection is this is a fun quest line. I hope I'm not misremembering. Me too. Great. <laughs> Thank you again for listening. And if you would like to get in touch with us in some capacity, you could tweet at us at podreturn, or you can send us an email at podreturnffxiv at gmail.com. Otherwise, we will see you next time. Understood. Over and out.